Hey, it's Adam. Welcome to our weekly teaching podcast here at South Hills Church in Corona, California. Our hope is that as you listen in, you'll find yourself laughing and learning and being challenged and encouraged to grab hold of who God has made you to be. Enjoy the message. Uh, the title of my message today, though, is Financially Fickle. Financially Fickle. And um, I, I know some of you are just like, you misspelled the word pickle because uh, you're trying to get fancy and alliterate. Um, and so this isn't really a word we use that much anymore. And so I want to just get us on the same page before I dive into this topic and just define what the word fickle actually means to sort of give you some context. The actual definition of the word fickle is to lack consistency or stability or to be prone to frequently change loyalties, interests, opinions, or actions. And so to be fickle in the area of finances would mean that like to approach your finances or your money in a way where you're sort of inconsistent or unstable, where uh, you're changing what you're doing or what you're trying to do or what you're loyal to or what you're interested in or what your opinions are about it or how you're utilizing it on a regular basis. And I think the idea of being financially fickle is something, is a spot where a lot of us find ourselves on a regular basis. Although, just to be real with you guys, when I think of the word fickle and I stare at this definition, the first thing I think of is not money. It is amusement parks. That's what I think of. And I'm not really an amusement park person. How many of you, you love amusement parks, you love rides, you love roller coasters, all that kind of good stuff? Um, I, I probably will not go with you. I'm just letting you know. And if I've had too many bad experiences, and part of it is just I, generally speaking, and maybe some of you are like, share this with me, I don't like waiting in a three and a half hour line for a two minute stomach ache. I don't enjoy that process. It feels like, like a bad thing counting down to another thing that I don't like either. And so, uh, but I do go because I have children and my children enjoy this and I'm willing to do things that I don't necessarily enjoy because the people I love enjoy these things. And so I've been to many, an amusement park and I've waited in really long lines to count down, to go on a ride. I don't really want to go on. And, uh, and, and of course, the biggest thing is like when your kids finally get to the spot where they're like high enough to go on the ride, you know, and I know several of you have cheated that process, okay, uh, with high heel shoes and whatnot. But like, uh, it's a big deal when your kids graduate up. And part of the, the, the only thing I think that's worse than waiting in this really long line to go on a ride that you don't want to really go on is waiting on a, a really long line to go on a ride and then getting up to it. And the person that you were going to ride with decides they no longer want to go on that ride. Some of you are thinking about this moment and getting as bitter as I've been for years. Um, it's frustrating, right? Because you're like, I don't know if I really want to do it, but I'll do it with you. And they're like, okay. And they're excited. They're psyched up about it. They're like, I'm going to do it. And you're like, you're really going to do it? And they're like, I'm really going to do it. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to bail this. This is going to be great. And you get all the way there. And just, you can see them getting nervous. Like when you finally get into the little thing, you go through the turnstile. You're standing in the line where you're the next in line. And they just, my kids have actually done the thing where I think they're actually going to get on it. And they just walk right through to the other side. <laughs> I've gotten trapped before. 
like trapped because they got out. I wasn't paying attention. I was trying to do the shoulder straps. You know what I mean? Is this bar going to fit down over the turkey? I just say, you know what I mean? Trying to figure out how that's going to work. And then I realized they're out. Now I got to go on a ride. I don't want to go on that. I was just going on for you and you're not here. And if you've ever been through this before, <clears throat> you know how infuriating it can be. It is so frustrating. And I would argue that no one walks away happy. You're annoyed that you waited all that time. They are embarrassed about what they did. Everybody's confused. There's usually a debrief afterwards. If you're in my family, there's definitely a debrief. And you probably had one of these debriefs before where you're asking them like about, you, you, wanna, you need answers to why they made you wait for two and a half hours to do something that they never ended up doing. I thought you wanted to do it. I did. I still kind of do. I'm like, I'm not going back in that line for you. Again, I don't trust you anymore. Then why didn't you do it? I don't know. I don't know why I didn't do it. I just, it was like the, the, the closer we started getting, the more nervous, like I started feeling and the more I started getting sick to my stomach and I, my brain started creating all of these what if scenarios of what was going to happen. And I'm like, like what? And my kids, I learned, have a very elaborate imagination. They're like, well, the thing could spring open. And I could fly out and, and then ping down the thing. I'm like, oh, that's real graphic. That's getting a little out there. No wonder you're freaked out. And, and they're like, you know, yeah, I just started getting scared. And then I just thought to myself, better safe than sorry. And so I decided not to do it. And I get it. And yet I'm still, like, just full disclosure, a little bit annoyed that I wasted all that time, like, counting down to the thing that never ended up happening. And yet, as annoyed as we can get when we are sort of party to that, or we're doing something for someone else that they don't end up following through with. We all kind of do this with different things. Maybe like a roller coasters, amusement parks is not the thing where you tend to get up there to the last minute and bail, but you do this with something because I would argue that we have all been inspired to do something that we just can't seem to make ourselves do. Like we see it, we get a vision for it. We're like, I'm going to do it. This is, it's going to happen this time. Right? And, and then we just, we never get around to it. We, we can never quite make it happen. I'm gonna run a marathon. I'm gonna do it. This is gonna be the year. Right? And it's been the year for like seven years. And everyone's like, I'm not sure if it's ever gonna happen. Right? I'm gonna go back to school this year. I'm gonna do it. You know? And then you, and you don't, you know? I'm gonna, I'm finally, I'm gonna stand up to my boss. I'm gonna say all the stuff to them that I usually only say, to my spouse when I get home. I wonder how many times you have lectured your partner as if they were your boss. And uh, man, they've been chewed out so many times for stuff they didn't do. And they're like, it's about time maybe direct this to the person it belongs to. All right, I'm gonna start this business, I'm gonna do it. And then we just, we just don't. And I would argue that it's not that we don't wanna do it or that we don't mean it when we say it. When you set these sort of goals, don't you genuinely mean it? You feel it, you really are passionate about it. We want to do it. We feel like we should do it. We research for it. We plan for it. We're convinced we'll be proud of ourselves on the other side of it, uh, that it's going to make us a better person. We may even initiate the first few steps, and we sort of kind of get up close to it. But then when it comes time to take like a really big step, usually the step that is like the no going back step where you're like fully committed and you've got to follow through when you're past the point of no return. For some reason, we just can't do it. 
And this is what I have learned about people who have bailed on me in lines at amusement parks. It's rarely a one-time occasion. Like, uh, you know, usually if somebody has done, is, does that to you, they have done it before, and they will probably do it again. And some of you are just like, yeah, I will not stand in a line with that person. I've been there before, and that is a lot of time I've never been able to get back. And so we don't want to do it. And each time, right, like the frustration grows, like because you become a little bit more annoyed that they said they were going to do it and didn't do it, and you waited, and they become more and more frustrated with themselves. Why can't I seem to do this thing that I want to do? And it is a frustrating place to find yourself because we all have these moments that seem to repeat over and over and over again. And this is why I would argue like some of you really don't like sharing your goals and dreams with other people anymore because, you know, you have failed to follow through so many times that nobody believes you, including you. You're like, I'm going to do it. And then part of you is like, you're probably not. And so you just sort of keep it to yourself. And you don't want to be like this, especially about this area that you really want to finally tackle, but it keeps happening to you. Why does it keep happening? And I think it's because of fear. You know, fear is this force that sabotages our follow-through, even if it's something we want to do. And we get taken down by it again and again and again, and we hate to be reminded of its power in our lives. I think this is actually part of the reason why people don't like it when, you know, pastors or churches talk about money, because I think just by and large, take money out of it, but it happens to be a subject that we do this in a lot. Like, we just hate being reminded of something we know we should do, but never get around to. Don't you hate it when someone brings something up to you that you really want to do, but you haven't yet? It feels like they're rubbing it in, even though they may just be asking an honest question. I thought you said you were going to do that. And you're like, yeah, I did say that, okay? And you're angry at them for bringing it up because you've already beat yourself up. Because you're even more disappointed than they are that you haven't been able to pull it off. And I think this is at least the way I think that a lot of people think about this subject. Because I've, I've never had any interactions with people where, um, you know, they've come up to me after church and we're just like, you know what? I really don't want to help other people. That's just who I am. You know what I mean? I just don't care about others. That's, and I don't really care who knows it, you know? I don't care about being generous. I've never wanted to be generous. I actually like when people think of me as someone who hoards and is selfish. That is the image I'm going for, and so it really doesn't bother me. I don't think God wants his people to give to uh, the church that they love that's actively investing in their life. I really don't believe that God wants people. And nobody ever says these things because this, this isn't really the way that we think. I think a lot of times it's that we want to, we get on the journey too, but then we have trouble with the follow through. And, you know, my gut feeling about this, as it turns out, um, matches the research um, there's all sorts of stats connected to giving, and usually towards the end of a year, different organizations will release research statistics on sort of giving trends or nonprofit giving trends. And here's just a few. Uh, Two-thirds of Americans 
give to nonprofit organizations. Maybe a little, maybe a lot, but on an ongoing basis, currently that's about what the stat shakes out to be. One third of all charitable giving in the U.S. typically goes to churches. So of the two thirds of people that are giving, one third of what they're giving is being aimed at churches. 10 to 15% of church attendees give on a regular basis. So uh, if, if we believe in this statistic, only 10 to 15% of the people or families that call this their church home actually give to this church. And typically that amount is less than 2% of their actual income, which is less than like right a tithe, which is 10%. Um, 84% uh, this is hilarious to me, of the people surveyed believe that the other people that they like go to church with should give more to their church. 84%. Other people really need to step up. Do you give? No, I don't do that. But like other people are not doing their part. 53% of churchgoers say that they would give more if their pastor asked them to. But 16% say if a pastor asks them to give money, it makes them less likely to give. And this is why my job is so fun. Because a good chunk of you are like, well, if you just told me that the church needed money, I would love to give. And then a handful of you are just like, if you ever ask for money, I'm going to stop giving. So this is why I have an ulcer. And like, guys... It's very confusing to know what to do. And again, I would say when you look at all of this stuff here, like most of us, I really do think, want to be open-handed with our money. We want to give. We want to be generous. We want to financially support what God is doing in the world. But few of us actually do. We know this for a fact. And so why? Fear, right? Now, most of us wouldn't, wouldn't call it that. In fact, if you're one of the people who's just like, I don't give or I stop giving or I haven't, it's, it's not that you don't want to. It's not that it's not a, like a desire of yours. I, I think that it's because on some level, there's something that you're afraid of that holds you back. Now, we don't like admitting that fear is calling the shots in any decisions in our life. And so what we do is we, we just, we say that, in a, in a different sort of way that feels, you know, more palatable to us. Like, I'm not afraid. I'm rational. <laughs> it's different. I'm very pragmatic, okay? I am, I'm, what I'm doing is I'm being conservative with my resources, okay? I'm not afraid. I'm being smart, okay? I've got to put some other things in order first, and then, then I, I'm going to be generous and, and, and give. And, and part of the reason, again, that we don't want to call it fear is that we hate admitting that we're afraid of anything, especially as grown-ups. But also, I think we all have known people that did have certain money fears that sort of guided their life. And we look at them and we look at us and we're like, I don't really feel like we have much in common. I don't see myself in them. Therefore, like I have no fears when it comes to money. But fear comes in different forms. In fact, I, I would say there's probably at least four categories of financial fears. And maybe you see yourself in some of these things. I would say the first one is probably the fear of not feeling secure. And to feel secure about money is being confident that your base needs are always gonna be met. 
And some of us, this is our, this is the fear connected to money of like, oh, I got to be careful because I, got, I, I need to make sure that I have enough to pay my bills. And I'm afraid that like, if something happens and I won't be able to do this and I got to have an emergency fund and a savings account and I got to have so much over here and so much over there and I got to have it stacked up and I'm, I'm nervous. And so like, I don't want to do this, this or this that are good things, maybe even godly things because that pushes on the fear that maybe I'm not going to be taken care of. The second fear is the fear of not, commanding respect. And to command respect is to, to be admired for who you are and what you've done. And for a lot of us, this is what money enables us to do is to grab hold of respect. I can dress a certain way. I can drive a certain thing. I can make certain decisions that people see what I'm doing, how I'm living my life, how I'm spending my money. And they're just like, wow, I admire that. I wish I could be like that. I respect that person because the way they utilize their money gives me clues to let them know that they're respectable. And I, I don't want to, if I don't do these certain things, then what does that mean about who I am and how people see me? For some of us, it's the fear of not realizing our dreams, of being able to do what we want to do over what we have to do, right? Some of us are just like, man, it's great. I get it. I'm a grown up. I understand the principle of adulting. You got to pay the bills. You got to do the thing, you know, but I don't want to just do the things that I have to do. I want to do all these other things that I also really want to do above and beyond just sort of like paying the bills. And, you know, if I give and if I'm generous, then I won't have enough for myself, not just to cover my bases and feel secure, but to actually be able to take the dream vacation that everyone else will be jealous that I took, to be able to drive the car I really want to, to be able to afford these very expensive hobbies that I feel like I'm due for how hard I work. And, and I, I don't want to have to actually give up these things that I love in order to do that. And for some of us, it's the fear of not having influence, of being able to impact what other people think and how they live. Because we're aware that a lot of people tend to do or take the advice of people who appear successful. And if we don't appear successful or if we cannot leverage our money um, in order to aim certain people or policies in the direction we want them to go, then maybe we won't have the influence that we desperately want in life. And all of these fears, I think, are connected to various core needs, right? We have a need as, as humans to feel confident, to be admired. We have a need to feel free and to leave an impact or live a life of purpose. And there's nothing wrong with those sorts of things. But for most of us, one of these core fears of not having or getting or obtaining this thing is driving a lot of our money decisions. And here's where it gets really complicated. Chances are, if you are married, your spouse has a different core financial fear than you, which is why you don't always agree on the best thing to do with your money, because you are aiming that money decision at absolving a different fear than they are. And this is why you fight all the time. And why can't they understand the correct decision? Why can't they see it as clearly as you do? Because maybe they're just trying to feel secure and you're just trying to realize your dreams. This creates a lot of conflict in a lot of different relationships. And this is, I think, a lot why we want to label these things something more noble sounding because we don't like the idea. Can you imagine just being in a fight? 
with the person that you share a budget with, and in the middle of the fight, you were like, oh, well, the real reason you think that's the right thing to do is because you make your decisions based on fear. Now, imagine how amazing that conversation is going to go from there. It's probably going to escalate and get a little bit crazy. None of us want to do that. And so uh, we would never accept that. We'd be like, I'm not, no, I'm just, I'm responsible where you are not. This is, I'm logical where you are not. And I, I, uh, what we find as we just study human nature in general is that this, this tension between fear and money is such a common struggle that when Jesus is here on earth of the preaching that he does within this very short window of time, that he actually devotes an entire sermon to the conflict between these two ideas. Because when he looks around at humanity at the time he's here on earth, he sees, what he sees in the people around him is the same sort of thing that you and I struggle with today. Like, you know, we, we want to live open-handedly and generously, and we want to live these worry-free lives with our resources, but we don't. And a lot of times it's because we feel like we can't. And Jesus speaks directly to that. And I want us to look at this, uh, this entire sermon, which is found in Matthew chapter 6. And uh, it feels a little bit like cheating because I'm just going to preach a sermon on a sermon, which is just, I think it's called stealing or plagiarism, but we're going to do that today. And um, what you're going to notice as you listen to this, even if you're not like a churchy sort of a person, um, you're going to realize that you know a lot of these Jesus quotes, but uh, very rarely are these things read together. And I think when you read them all together in a row, it sort of turns on the light bulb about what these things mean and are implying in a different sort of way. Um, I think a lot of us don't, don't know they're connected and we don't know that even some of them are even about money but I, I think it will help give us a path forward to sort of dissect this together. It's what it says. Jesus is talking Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. This is the way he opens up. He says, Don't store up treasures here on earth where moths eat them and rust destroys them and where thieves can break in and steal. Store your treasures in heaven where moth and rust cannot destroy and thieves do not break in and steal. Wherever your treasure is, there the desires of your heart will also be. And Jesus is essentially saying um, something that we talked about a lot last week, this idea that like, listen, if you really want to feel happy, content, blessed in life, don't just use your money to buy stuff because all stuff ends up just falling to the wayside. Use it to impact stories. And the best sort of stories that you can help tell are, with your money are stories about faith. But I will tell you this, like whatever you use your money on, you're going to care more about. So when you think about how to leverage your money, the money that you do have, a big question you should be asking yourself is, what do I want to care about? And you should invest in that. What do I want to think about? What, what do I want to actually, where do I want my heart to rest? Invest in that thing. Jesus goes on to say this in verse 22. He says, your eye is like a lamp that provides light for your body. And when your eye is healthy, your whole body is filled with light. But when your eye is unhealthy, your whole body is filled with darkness. And if the light you think you have is actually darkness, how deep that darkness really is. Now, again, Jesus is spinning a metaphor here. 
um, what is he saying? He's saying, essentially, there are really two ways to look at money through a lens of scarcity of like, there's never going to be enough. There's no more coming after this. I'm afraid. Or through the lens of sufficiency of like, God has my back. He provides for all my needs. I'm going to be okay. And how you see this area of life, how you see finances, um, has this ability to impact every other area of your life. And the reality of it is a lot of people live in denial. We believe, we think that we believe in a sufficient God, or at least that's what we say or claim or tell ourselves. But we live, we behave as if our resources are all scarce. And I think it's really interesting that if you go back and just look at the the different fears, money fears that exist, um, all of these core financial fears are really just specific versions of scarcity, of believing that there's not enough, there's not gonna be enough, and the things that I care most about are not gonna be taken care of because God maybe doesn't care about those things. Jesus goes on to say this, Matthew chapter six, verse 24, no one can serve two masters. For you will hate one and love the other. You'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and be enslaved to money. Are you starting to recognize that these are like all the Jesus greatest hits just back to back to back? And he just said them all. But you're like, man, so quotable, this Jesus. Wow, I can see, I get it. I see why people really like him. And essentially, um, to really understand this, um, because we don't really use like master language anymore. I want to just bring this into like modern terms. A master is someone or something that gives orders and sets boundaries. So think about it in these sort of like more generic or broader terms. And Jesus is saying like, are you aware of what has mastered you? Because in his view, uh, a lot of us say no to what God is asking of us because we've already uh, uh, prioritized what money is asking of us. And it's not even really money that we're listening to. In the mind of Jesus, it's our fears about money that are calling the shots. It's our fears about money that are actually determining how we live our entire life as opposed to our faith and trust in God. And he's like, that's a problem. Because you can either make decisions based on your fear of not having enough money for a variety of reasons, or you can make decisions based on your faith in God and what he's asking you to do and believing that ultimately he is sufficient in caring for you. And, you know, I think a lot of times we have this sort of pushback in our connection with God where we hear something or feel a prompting to give and invest and be generous with something that we have. And we just think like, I would love to God, but I can't because I wouldn't have enough to take care of my family after that. And I know you wouldn't ask me to do that. I can't do what you're asking me to do, God, because then I would have to stop doing the thing that I'm convinced makes people like me. And I don't want people not to like me. And so I can't, I can't do what you're asking me to do because I've got, I, I have to do, I, you know, I can't do that because that would require me to give up this other thing that I really like. And that brings me a lot of joy and satisfaction. And I, I want to honor you, but I actually just kind of want to, do what I want to do. And so I'm not going to be able to do that, God. Like, I'd like, I mean, I, I can't do that because I would lose the ability to get people to do what you want them to do, God. I'm not even doing it for me. The reason I'm trying to control people with my money, God, is for you. I, it really is. 
I know you have goals for humanity, and if I had enough resources, I could sort of direct people's behavior with those resources. And if I, if I just sort of like give to your kingdom, um, then I wouldn't be able to like sort of steer where the money goes, and I, I don't really want to have to do that. But the reality that Jesus is getting at here is if your financial fears influence your decisions more than God's direction, money is your master. And in fact, if the main reason you honor God is so he'll bless your money, you're not really serving God. You're trying to manipulate God into helping you serve money. God, I love you so much. And because of that, you owe me um, and you need to give me. And if you don't, I probably won't serve you or trust you because I'm really just kind of doing it so that you'll give me what I want. So it's like, what are you really serving at this point? And this is what Jesus is bringing to the surface of all these people's lives. And now you're like, now I get why some were mad and wanted him dead, because like, that's very frustrating. I don't want that to be put in my face. The issue with this too is that you cannot manipulate God. And so oftentimes this ends poorly. And I get it. Like, we all want to do it because we want to feel confident. We want to feel admired. We want to be free. We want to be able to make an impact. But I think a lot of us are guilty of getting those needs met, which are not wrong to want to get met. We look for money to meet those needs instead of God. And we look for money to protect us instead of God. We look for money to provide for us instead of God. We look for money to make us feel safe instead of God. And I'll tell you, it doesn't really work because there's no amount of money that will actually make you feel the way you want to feel. It ends up being a loop that we chase that never ends up getting us where we want to go. Then then Jesus says this. I'll read this huge chunk to you. This is Matthew chapter 6, verse 25. He says, that's why, all the stuff I just told you, that's why I tell you, do not worry about everyday life. Like whether you're gonna have enough food uh, and drink or enough clothes to wear. Isn't life more than food and your body more than clothing? It's a rhetorical question and he's expecting people to be like, yes. Look at the birds. They don't plant or harvest or store food in barns and yet your heavenly father feeds them and aren't you more valuable uh, to him than they are? And they're like, Yes. Can all your worries add a single moment to your life? And why worry about your clothing? Look at the lilies of the field. They don't work to make their clothing. And yet if God cares so wonderfully for wildflowers that are here today and thrown into the fire tomorrow, he'll certainly care for you. Why do you have so little faith? So don't worry about these things saying, what will I eat? What will I drink? What will I wear? The number one things that we're all paranoid about. These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers but your heavenly father already knows your needs. In other words, Jesus is just summarized again. He's just echoing, don't let money fears determine the direction of your life. And then he says something that I find incredibly convicting. He says, do you know who, who does that? People who don't believe in God. Like people who don't trust God, people who are not Christians. And this is really what Jesus is saying here. He's saying like, if you consider yourself to be a Christian, 
act like it financially. And they're all like, we don't like this sermon. What else you got? Anything else that you have? But he keeps going instead. He says this, Matthew chapter 6, verse 33. Seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and God will give you everything you need. Now, again, this is one of those verses that is often lifted out and talked about in a more generic sense, which is actually, I think in a lot of ways, fine. Because in which area of your life should you honor God or put God first? All of them, right? And so this really could be applied to a lot of different things. But if we leave this in this context, what area of life is this entire sermon about? Money. He's saying, put God first in your finances and live the way he's asking you to. And when you do that, after you do that, you will discover you already have everything you need. Because in the mind of Jesus, living blessed means organizing your finances around your love for God, not your fear of the future. And what's difficult about this is I would say, especially in our crazy, fickle economy right now, which you guys now know what that means because we just did a vocab thing at the beginning. A lot of us, you may not want to admit this, we organize our finances around our fear of the future. We actually, we actually pull back from giving and living in a way that demonstrates love for God so that we can honor our fear of the future. And Jesus is like, what are you really worshiping? What has really mastered you? What are you ultimately trusting? Because whatever it is you look to and bow to and listen to, because you are convinced it is going to meet your needs and bring you peace and protect you and make you happy, whatever that thing is, that is your God. And Jesus is like, and some of you don't realize your God is not God. And I, I gotta tell you, like, just as a, a diagnostic, like, if you don't even realize you have a need for God until you start running low on money, you have not prioritized God's kingdom above everything else. Because God is a means to your end. That's not what you're seeking first. And because you're not putting your treasure in where God tells you to, your heart isn't really in it. Because that's how it works. And then Jesus sort of wraps this sermon. I know you guys can't wait for this part to be over. Verse 34, he says, so don't worry about tomorrow. Right? Which is like, feels like an absurd thing to say. That's literally the only thing I'm worrying about all the time, tomorrow. Just don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will bring its own worries. I love this from Jesus. He's like, don't worry about tomorrow. And you're like, oh, because everything's gonna be okay. No, no, no. Tomorrow is gonna be crazy too. <laughs> Wait, What? Don't you, wouldn't you expect for the person to be like, don't worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow is going to be awesome. I guarantee it. I'm God. But instead, he's like, don't worry about tomorrow. You're going to have a lot of problems tomorrow. I know. I've been there. 
I've seen it. It is going to be insane. So calm down today because tomorrow is going to be nutty. Today has enough trouble for today. So maybe just focus on today and do what I'm asking you to do today and be present today and experience my peace today and trust that I'm going to take care of you tomorrow. Now, maybe like a lot of us, like you're looking at all these verses and you're thinking like, okay, so this is why I don't like this because this is recommending to live in the opposite way that I live. <laughs> so that I don't like that. I worry a lot about money and my fears keep me from a place of peace and generosity. And so what do I do? Because this is my roller coaster. This is the insurmountable thing that I, I'm like, I'm gonna do it. I'm really gonna do it this time. I know I'm gonna like myself better. I've been thinking about it. I've researched it. I get it. You know how many people have died on this roller coaster? Zero. Why am I convinced it's gonna be me? This is crazy. I'm gonna do it. Nothing bad is gonna happen. And as you're inching closer to the moment of truth, you're still panicked and paranoid. And you're like, how do, I, how, do, how do I overcome it? How do I get to the other side of it? I don't know what to do because like giving and being generous and living open-handedly, that for me is the roller coaster. And a good therapist would probably tell you that if you want to overcome a fear, you're going to have to face it. That was an amen from a therapist. I just want you guys to know that. Always bring back up. That's what I do. And a lot of us come to believe things and build our lives on things that are not true because, you know, we've had a traumatic experience that caused us because of this, this one or two things that happened to us that deeply imprinted on us. Now we judge the entire category of that thing based on this memory. And it sort of locks us in place. Let me give you an example of this. I had a friend who was attacked by a dog when we were kids. I'm talking a big, brutal dog, right? With a, with a kerchief, right? And um, the dog that actually attacked him was like a really, was sort of a scary dog. It was that we were riding our bikes to this trailer park, and he got attacked by this dog, and it was brutal. And we were like trying to get the dog off, and the owner came out and whatever, and he ended up being fine, but his leg was kind of chewed up a little bit. And more than anything, like more than any physical pain that he experienced, like it messed with his mind. And this kid was not the same. And he grew up, and I, like literally 15 years later, he's a grown man, big guy, and just afraid of dogs. Like the reason why I have this picture is because someone had a dog like this that they had with them and that dog like sniffed and barked at him one time and he had to leave the restaurant. He was crying in the parking lot. And like, I cannot, like, I mean, imagine somebody who like, you wouldn't want to bump into in a dark alley. This is this guy, he's just massive, just big. And I'm like, you could just, you could sneeze and, and murder that dog. I mean, like you are so huge, but he was, he was afraid. And he, it never been a big deal. And then he started dating a girl who like really was into dogs. And we were like, uh-oh, dude, this may be a deal breaker. I don't know what's going to happen. He's like, I got I to gotta deal with this thing. And so he went and saw a therapist about it. And, and um, she walked him through this process where, like, um, she showed him 
pictures of dogs when they came in and they talked about them and which was really, it freaked him out. Then she gave him a picture of a dog and it was like a dog that like his girlfriend had said that she wanted to get. And she was like, put this on your desk at work. And so he put this picture of this dog and he, he was like, at first it was like this. And then he started like slowly moving it like where he could actually see it in full. And then um, she took him to this, uh, this, this pet store where they have like the glass and like the holes drilled in, you know? And then he like looked at dogs through the glass and, and was just like shaking and freaked out. But it was like in proximity, he was experiencing, getting the experience, taking it in. They went back several times. Then she was like, let's go in the room and you can pet a puppy. And I'm telling you, like, I've never seen someone more afraid of anything in their entire life of just, they brought in this little puppy and he was just like, <laughs> Right, and it was just, but eventually pet the puppy, held the puppy, and eventually a few of us went with him, and we like walked this dog in public, and it was like, it was a long process of him like facing this fear, and yet over time, his exposure to an interaction with good dogs dissolved this fear that he had, and he was able to separate this one experience from the entire category and actually move on and live the life that he wanted to live. And I will tell you this, no one has ever overcome fear by bowing to it. Man, how did you break the fear of that in your life? Well, I just avoided it, and one day it was just gone. Never. Never heard it. It's not real. It doesn't happen. That's what we want. We wish. This is what's so crazy, right? Um, you know, we, we learn to not be afraid of a thing by doing the thing in small increments and little, with little baby steps. And this is true of a lot of things in life, I think including giving and being generous. But we think like, man, as soon as I have enough to calm my fears, then I'll trust God with my money. But that's not how it works. Because the reality of it is we learn to trust God with our money by trusting God with our money. You're never going to get to a place where you are just unafraid of living open-handedly by not doing it. You're like, I'm going to discipline myself to, to give this much, to do this thing, to live this way. This is why we're constantly, uh, as a church, echoing these pieces of the Bible around the topic of money that's just like, hey, try this. Hey, do this. Like, like pick a percentage that's really small. I get it. We're talking about 10%. Ignore that. 1%. Start somewhere and just practice. You will learn to trust God by practicing to trust God in small ways. Just try. Just try it. Begin to move in that direction in small ways and then incrementally increase those interactions. John, one of the first disciples, said it this way in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16. He says, we know how much God loves us and we've put our trust in his love. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect and perfect love expels all fear. Now, I want you to think about the progression of this. Like we know, we get that God loves us. And when we begin to sort of understand this idea, it enables us to sort of 
trust someone who we believe demonstrates love to us. But that's not enough to really transform our lives and the fear problem that we have. Like we, we have to then actually live out of it. We have to live in God. And the more we live in God and demonstrate our trust by doing what God asks us to do, the more aware of and fulfilled by the love of God we become. And it's that love as it expands through us demonstrating actions of trust that actually begins to uproot the fear in our lives. Like, like the author here is not saying that passively thinking about God's love will overthrow our fear, but actively living in alignment with it will. Some of you are like, well, I just try and sit and like think about how much God loves me and I'm still afraid. It's like, that's not how it works. That thinking has to drive you to doing. And it's the repetitive actions, it's the practicing that actually begins to change us. The more you act on the love of God, the less worried and afraid you become. And I wonder what would happen in your life if you started making financial decisions in small, repetitive, repeatable ways based on God's love for you as opposed to your fear about the future. And the thing that I'll tell you is the same thing that I, I know this therapist was telling my buddy about the dog. And I've heard him tell to other people who have similar like phobias. And I, I'll say this to you, like I have talked to so many people at our church who are like, I didn't really get the whole giving thing. No matter how many ways you explained it, no matter how many ways you said it, like I didn't really get it until after I started doing it. And the more I practiced it, the easier it got and the more I got out of it. And in fact, you know what's really weird? Like the way I see that and the way that like I started approaching that began affecting the way that I saw everything else in my entire life. You know what people are just saying? They're saying in their own words, in their own experience, all that information that you just shared about Jesus, when I actually decided to tiptoe into it, my experience affirmed that it was true. It wasn't knowing it, but doing it that caused me to fully believe it. So here's the question that I want to leave you with as we get ready to turn the corner and dive into December. What financial action do you need to take to move your heart closer to God and further from fear? Because it is an action that will pull you into the right direction. Maybe it's a baby step. Maybe it seems so small compared to other people. But what is the thing that if you move in that direction will begin to pull you into becoming the kind of person that you want to be? Here's what I'll tell you. You do not want to get to the end of another year and realize that for the however manyth time you waited in the whole line. You got excited all over again. You felt inspired. You heard the message. You filled out the card. You told yourself you were going to do it. You waited in the whole line to actually become generous and do the generous thing and actually allow God to break this hold on your life. And you got all the way up to the edge and didn't do it. 
nothing is going to change in your heart until you begin to change in small ways what you do. And that's my prayer for you. You wouldn't wait till next year. You would start now. Start now. Would you bow your heads across this room? I want to just pray this over your lives today. God, thank you so much for every person in this place. Thank you for your love of us. And thank you that you demonstrate that love to us, not just with words, but with actions. God, you take care of us. You provide for us. You make sure we have everything we need and, in fact, more than we need. And God, I pray that as we look to close out this year and begin a new one, that we wouldn't wait to start new habits or begin breaking bad patterns in January, but that we would look at this year end and we would begin to change the way we make money decisions. And, and God, as we do the things you are asking of us, as we prioritize you in this area of our existence, that we would begin to see how everything looks different to us how everything begins to shift and change, how our level of peace begins to rise, how our fear begins to be squelched. One repetitive, generous act at a time. God, may we reflect you and receive everything you want us to from that experience. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for tuning in to this week's message. We hope you heard something that spoke directly to where you're at right now in life. To find out more about our church, hit up our website, southhills.org slash corona, or follow us on social media at South Hills Corona. And if our messages have made a difference in your life, help us get the word out by rating and reviewing this podcast. And as always, you can support the ongoing work of our church by giving through our website at southhills.org slash give and selecting the Corona Campus. Thank you so much for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next week. God bless.